your uh, Bible with you. You can follow along. If not, it should be up behind me on the screen. We're just going to read the verses and then talk about them a little bit. Uh, verse 9 of Mark chapter 1 says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Can you pray with me? Father, we just come again before your throne and just ask God that your Spirit would guide us into truth. Uh, Lord, we just desire to know your truth and what you've uh, preserved for us in your word, and we just ask your spirit to illuminate us to the truth. And more importantly, that we not only be hearers of the word, God, but that you'd allow us and give us the, uh, the opportunity, Lord, to, to take what we, what we learn and the wisdom that we garner, Lord, to apply it to our relationship with you, um, that we can worship you in a deeper meaning, in a deeper way, as we learn more and more about you, God. We're so thankful that you've given us the opportunity to know who you are and um, how we can have relationship and be able to worship you in spirit and in truth. So we thank you and just ask for your help now in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we just have a few things to go through, just a few verses. The first thing that we see in Mark chapter 1, verse 9, is we see that uh, Jesus comes from Nazareth. He's the Nazarene, right? In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. And that's kind of important because... Ultimately, as we know, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And he desired to be able to, um, or he, has, he came into, this, into his creation to be able to, to save his people. All those things that the Old Testament prophesied about, uh, Jesus uh, was the, the answer, was the fulfillment of that. And um, the Jewish people of that time had an expectation of the Messiah coming. They were looking for the Messiah to come. And it's uh, uh, obvious through the Gospels that we see even the religious leaders and the people have this expectation of the Messiah, and Jesus doesn't meet that expectation. And Jesus being from Nazareth is yet another strike against him in the eyes of the common culture, against, uh, in the eyes of the, of the religious elite. Because the people in Nazareth were, were not thought of. They were not held to high esteem. They were kind of looked down upon in the region of Galilee. And I think all of us can, can relate to that, right? We have, like I can, I'm from California, and for the sake of not offending anybody, uh, I won't tell you what I think the armpit of California is, but there's a certain area that I think is the armpit, right? And, uh, and maybe not the people, but at least the region. And that's kind of essentially what the people of the time thought of the, the Nazarenes in the area of Galilee. Um, and it's kind of been a derogative term. Even, even in, the, the, in our age, in 2014, uh, if you remember, ISIS invaded um, a part of Iraq and uh, invaded a city, Mosul. I almost forgot what city it was in 2014. And, and they began to mark out different houses with the Arabic letter N. And that was to denote the Christians there because the N was stood for ultimately for the Nazarene. That he, they were following the Nazarene. And so we see this idea, Jesus comes from Nazareth in Galilee. Mark is giving us the start, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he says the beginning of the gospel is when he got baptized, when he came to John the Baptist who was doing a baptism of repentance 
uh, baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As in the earlier verses, you can read that. And we've, we've had sermons on that. So I'm going to try really hard not to re-preach my sermon from a couple weeks ago and uh, move on here. And so John, was do, or John the Baptist was doing that. And Jesus comes to John and gets baptized by him. Which might throw us for a loop as we discussed last week. The deity of Jesus Christ and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ made him unique to all of us because he is from God. He came from heaven. He, he was of the virgin birth. He did not have that sin nature that you and I were born with. All those things that we discussed last week. There I go again, re-preaching my sermon. Um, but the, the uniqueness of Jesus. And so why would Jesus have to be baptized? And I hope I can answer that this evening through scripture. Jesus came and began his earthly ministry here, shows up in Jerusalem around 27 AD. He's around 30 years old. But we know he grew up in Nazareth. He was, he was a boy and he, he grew up. And there's very little in scripture that talks about his, 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 his youth. We have a few windows into that. But we see him showing up on the scene and fulfilling this Messiah um, prophecy that is all throughout the, the Old Testament. So we go on, um, and we note that that, that con- negative connotation of the Nazarene is even found in Scripture. Right? John records this time when uh, Philip comes and tells Nathaniel about, about Jesus, the Messiah, shown up, and, and Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? So that negative connotation is obviously there. We go on in the last part of verse 9, of um, 19b, and we see that uh, Christ's baptism, and, and he was baptized in the Jordan by John. And the other Gospels have a, a more fuller picture of this time, and um, that's what's great about the, the, the Gospels is it develops this, this unique and deeper picture for us. But we're just going through Mark right now, and so we're trying to stick with what Mark is trying to convey but sometimes we need to go into other Gospels to be able to see the fuller picture of what's going on, as we did last week. And we see here that he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And we see him in Matthew asking, or John the Baptist asking him, why, I don't need to baptize, you need to baptize me. And what Jesus' reply was in Matthew is, I need to fulfill everything, all righteousness. I needed to be baptized. He needed to be baptized as well. And so that's why Jesus is baptized. And so what of it? Why did Jesus have to be baptized? If he's truly God in the flesh, if he's truly Emmanuel, God with us, with no sin. And that we know that this baptism is of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so if he had no sin, why did he need to be baptized? But ultimately, what Jesus is doing and, and what the will of the Father is, right? He's fulfilling all righteousness is that Jesus comes and immediately um, identifies with mankind and his sin problem. That he enters into humanity, into his creation, and he, he identifies with the, the weakness and the nature of, of, of us. Right? He's our great high priest who has compassion because, as in Hebrews, the, the author of Hebrews says, because he knows what it's like to be human and live in a fallen world. And that's why Jesus had to be baptized because it was the Father's will that Jesus would identify with us as men and women and our problem of sin. That's why John the Baptist was 
baptizing for the repentance of sins because symbolizing the need, the, the problem to prepare the way for the Lord is to take care, get our sin problem taken care of. And Jesus comes and identifies with us through being baptized. Even though he knew no sin, 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, he became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He, he identified with us. He took on man. He became a man. He humbled himself, Philippians 2 says, to become a servant so that he could come and serve us and ultimately to pay the penalty that you and I deserve for our sin. And immediately in the beginning of his baptism, when the Messiah shows up, he identifies with man in the sin problem by, through, this testimony, through this baptism. We go on and we see the triune testimony of the Son of God in verses 10 and 11. The triune testimony of the Son of God. Do you see the three persons of our triune God are in play here? Verse 10, as soon as he came up out of the water, that's Jesus, he saw the heavens being torn open. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So we see the Spirit of God, right? Imagine, I can't even imagine what that's what's like. And ultimately, how thin the veil is, right? Between our reality and the spiritual reality of who our God is and where he dwells, right? The, the, the heavens just open, and it's numerous, it's said in numerous occasions in the gospel where when God intercedes in his creation, right, the heavens tear open. That's just amazing. And then the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. Oftentimes you'll see the, a dove as a, as a symbol of the Holy Spirit of God because of these passages that are recorded in the Gospels. And so we just see the Spirit descending upon him. And, and what does that mean? It's ultimately God, God's demonstrating the anointing of the Messiah. That God has anointed Jesus as his Messiah that is prophesied. In the Old Testament, let me share the old messianic prophecy of this servant, the Messiah that would come. In Isaiah 42, this is 700 years prior to Jesus arriving on the scene. This is why we have a, a great star, like we have a faith in it. We, it's a faith that we believe, but our faith is based on the, the historical evidence of Scripture. And this is one of them, that all the, these prophesy, prophecies in the Old Testament, Jesus has fulfilled them. And so even though it's a faith, it's a faith that's based on, on factual, historical evidence. And this is one of them. This is my servant talking about this Messiah that would come. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. And he will bring justice to the, to the nations or to the Gentiles. That's what Isaiah says, 700 years prior to Jesus arriving on the scene. Jesus shows up on the scene. He gets baptized by John, and he doesn't just get baptized, and that's where this, the, the gospels end. No, God, the, God makes, makes it loud and clear that this is the arrival of and the anointing of the, the Messiah. The Spirit descends on him, just as Isaiah said he would. And then a voice comes from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And so we see God the Father testifying to the, to the authenticity of the, the claim of who Jesus, Jesus is. And we also see the testimony of Jesus because he, he's standing there in flesh. He's there. As promised. God with us. And he hears the Father say, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This triune testimony 
of this radical event in human history. This event that changes everything. Because God has fulfilled his promise of salvation through the Messiah that he promised. And us in 2022 have the ability to, to see in, the, in God's word and to, to rest and be assured of that God has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. But it speaks of this triune nature of our God. And, and this is where we need to pause I, before we move on with the, the story that Mark gives us about John, Jesus going into the, the, the wilderness for 40 days. This is a, another doctrine that we need to stop and pause because the doctrine of the Trinity, the triune nature of God, is always a, a doctrine that is uh, very confusing. If you look at church history, all throughout church history, there's, there's always been um, debate and different beliefs and different teachings going on, and the church has always tried to correct these things. And, and ultimately what we try to do here in this church and what all Bible-believing people try to do is try to reconcile what God has given to us in his word, the entirety of scripture. And so the triune nature of our God is, is something that we believe and we hold to, not because we, we made it up, but because that's what we think, we, that's what we see in scripture. That's what God has revealed himself and who God has revealed himself to be. We see the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and then the Father speaking, and, and the Son uh, standing there being, after being baptized. And, and so we see three persons, three unique persons. And, and when I have these conversations, sometimes I get, so what do you mean Jesus was a ventriloquist, and he, he said, this is my beloved Son, you know, and he just, because he was God, and, and that that's just comes from a misunderstanding of what we see in Scripture. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are three separate persons that means persons when as soon as the problem is is our language right as soon as i say person everyone thinks of a human but person is a definition of of a personality the ability to to act independently to 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 love someone to be angry to to decide to be able to enter into worship that's what a person a person persona does a personality and we see the fact that God has revealed himself in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Although there is only one God, scriptures declare. And that is the, that is the wrestling of the triune nature of our God. That it's something we reveal in scripture. And what we don't want to do is try to water it down or change God into something that we can understand because the next thing you know we're no longer worshiping the God of scripture that's the danger the triune nature of our God the trinity is revealed is a revealed truth through the word of God I I hope you know that this isn't coming out of the Baptist handbook this is from scripture one of the books that I, I when I was after being saved that I really really helped me to understand and how to comprehend, because I can't, I can't comprehend God, right? He, and that's ultimately what it's all about. This, this being of God is incomprehensible in our finite mind. We cannot ever put God in a box and say, this is God. But he's, he's condescended, he's revealed who he is. And this triune nature, he's revealed to us. 
But this Forgotten Trinity is the name of the book. I wrote it, read it like 14 years ago. I read it again this week just to, to, to refresh my memory. And, and I was just going to scan through it and get some things out of it. But I started, I'm like, man, I've got to read the whole thing. Because it just, I, what I love about the Forgotten Trinity is that it's not a book about who God is not. Like a defense, like an intellectual defense about who God is not and who God is. And, you know, the but James White writes this to, to try to get the Christian to, to worship God in a more amazing way because we, uh, in a way that we can know who God is through his triune nature and that we don't need to be um, like uh, tiptoe around it. It is who God has revealed himself to be and sometimes we, we don't want to talk about the Trinity because we don't honestly don't understand it or have confusion about it. But this is who God has revealed himself to be and we this is the God that we worship. He says, this is the definition that he gives. It's a very simple definition of the triune God. Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal, co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the being of God, the essence of God, there's only one God, right? We are human beings. We are one person of a human being, right? Everything is being, right? A rock has being because it exists. But we have a personality individually. And there are many human beings. But the scriptures declare there is one being of God, only one. But that one being exists and has always existed co-eternally and co-equally as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is who God has revealed himself to be. And there's three foundations that I want to talk about before we close that we glean from Scripture, right? I put revealed foundation because this is what has been revealed in Scripture. The first foundation of our God is there is only one God. Again and again, Scripture declares there's only one. There's not many. There's only one creator God. The Shema, the morning prayer for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. It says they prayed this prayer every morning. They still do. Listen, Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one that the scriptures declare. And if you remember our sermons in weeks past, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, declare his unique name, Yahweh. Our God, Yahweh, is one. Again, Isaiah talks about this and there's so many verses that I could pull out tonight but I don't want to just beat us down with this but I encourage you to to read the forgotten trinity or or come and see me if you have questions about this because I want to give you uh, insight and and whatever needs to happen so you can have have a better understanding uh, of who God is but uh, this one idea of only one God Isaiah says and he's quoting the the God here declare and set forth your case indeed let them consult together who has announced this from the old, from old? Who has long since declared it? It is not I. The, is it not I, the Lord? So he's saying, who knew the past and who declared the past and the present? It is I, the Lord. And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There's, there is none except me. There's no other God. Isaiah declares, and not only 45, but 44, 45, 46, uh, all throughout, I can just bring you many scriptures that declare there's only one God. 
But look at what he says. Turn to me and be saved. That's what's beautiful about our creator God is he has made a way for us to be saved if we turn to him, if we, if we embrace the gospel message. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So the foundation number one is that there is only one God. And the revealed foundation, the second revealed foundation is there are three divine persons in the one being of God, the one essence of God. And I just want to share with you Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. This is the Great Commission. Right? Jesus is about to ascend and he says, This is what I want you to do. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular name, not names, in the name. What is the name of our God? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The three, great three in one. And again, all these I have numerous scriptures that I could take you to and, and, and point to the fact that God, the Father, obviously no one really contends that, right, that he is God and that Jesus is called God and that uh, worship is done to God and that the Holy Spirit is called God and, and um, many scriptures that I could take you to to demonstrate the fact that these three persons are equated as being God, yet scriptures declare there's only one God, one being of God. And so this one God in being and essence has always existed. And that's the third foundation. These persons are co-equal and co-eternal. They've always existed as three distinct persons and one being. Again, there's only one God. And the, our problem is, is we try to equate God and make God something that we can understand in his creation. And what scripture declares again and again in Isaiah 55, 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, as far as the heaven is from the earth, are my ways different from your ways. This is the creator God who spoke all these stars and the universes that surround us into existence. The law of thermodynamics says there is no energy being created anywhere. All these stars are burning and losing energy and burning off energy. No energy is being created. But it is this God who spoke it into existence. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19 says. And so does our God that is something we can't just put in a box or equate to something in creation because we ultimately end up, whatever we equate God to, it falls short of who our God is. And we need to be careful of that. Someone's advancing my slides for me, so I'll take that as a hint. I need to hurry up. So these persons are co-equal. They're all God. They all perfectly love one another. They've all um, unity and community that, that's just who our God is, and they're co-eternal. They've always existed. Jesus, before he took upon flesh, existed as the second person of our triune God. I mentioned last week in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he said, Father, I, I, I yearn to... And, and I ask that you return to me the glory that I had with you before I came into this world. 
Jesus longed to be restored back into that eternal place of God and his perfect love and perfect interaction with these uh, the three persons. Just amazing. So these persons are co-equal and co-eternal. And again, I have many verses that I can take you to and I can give you a bar graph and a, a list of those verses to, to try to demonstrate to you. But ultimately, we see all three persons of our triune God interacting in creation and interacting with us. And each have a unique mission and a, a unique uh, utility in which they're doing in their creation. Right? And Paul ends his letter to the Corinthian church and says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, That is what we are saved by. God's grace, God's uh, un, unmerited love demonstrated to us by allowing Jesus to come into the earth to live the perfect uh, life that you and I could not, only to go to the cross to pay for sin, not for him, but for us, so that all who hear this gospel message and believe and receive him as their Savior will be reconciled to their God and, and given eternal life where they will dwell with their God forever. So thankful this life is not what it's all about. It is the life to come. Jesus and the Father and the Spirit have made for us. He says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? It is through Jesus' accomplished sacrificial work, and it's the demonstration of God the Father's love that he allowed his Son to come. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, John 3.16. The love of God and, and what? The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said before in John 14, before I must go so that the Comforter may come. God the Spirit may come and dwell within the hearts of the believers. We are now the temple of God. And Paul's desire is that they know not just Jesus, but they know the grace of the Lord Jesus, but they also know the, the love of the Father that's been demonstrated in Jesus and that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be a reality in their lives. And I pray that is a reality for you this evening. That your God is more than just Jesus or the Father or the Spirit is the great three in one. And we see the triune God working in not only creation as I demonstrated last week, but in our salvation. And this is what I'm closing with. In Titus chapter 3, Paul writes to Titus, and I shared this verse last week, but you'll see how all three persons work within our salvation, the salvation that you and I enjoy tonight, if you're in Christ, was done not just by Jesus, but by all three. But when the kindness of God, right, his love, God the Father's love for us, and we know it's God the Father because the, the, the text will flush that out for us. When the kindness of God, our Savior, uh, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, according to his uh, love and mercy. Through what? Their washing and regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so we see the God demonstrating his love for us through the, the rebirth, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we covered last week, right? John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but the one who is coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And when we receive and believe it, we are regenerated, we are born again, we are born from above. And it's the, God the Spirit who does that in our hearts. 
In verse 6, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly. How? Through the sacrifice of God the Son. Through Jesus Christ our Savior. This great salvation that we have is, is a salvation wrought by our triune God. And it is he who calls us to worship him in spirit and in truth. That we might embrace the triune nature and that we might worship him more fully as we gain wisdom in that. We don't need wisdom to be saved, but the increasing of our wisdom and our knowledge of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and who God the Spirit is and who God the Father is allows us to worship him more deeply. And that's the application for us tonight. James White in his book um, started off with his book by saying, I love the Trinity because it is the God who saved me. What a great phrase for us. I not only love Jesus, I not only love the Father, I not only love the Spirit, I love the Trinity, the triune God who saved me. To him be the glory. Verse 7, so that having been justified, declared righteous by his grace, we become heirs with the hope of eternal life. And that's the only reason why I stand up here tonight is to proclaim the good news that our, your creator God has made a way for you to be reconciled to him and that you would be heir of eternal life and the hope that comes in that by placing your faith and trust in Christ and his accomplished work alone, that the spirit of God would convict you of your need to do so and to make you born again, that you may too experience the love of the father who will push this plan of salvation into motion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.